0: Welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the editor in chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme of the February 2024 issue is organ transplantation and nutrition support. Joining me today is my friend and professional colleague, Sarah Dechecco. Sarah was a transplant dietitian at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, for almost four decades before she just recently retired. She is author of a guest editorial entitled Musings on the Evolution of Transplant Nutrition, or If We Only Knew Then What We Know Now. Sarah's agreed to share her thoughts with me today on the status and the progress of the field of transplant. So thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. Thank you,
1: Jeanette, for inviting me. This will be a a fun conversation to have as we kind of walk down memory lane, if you will.
0: That's right. So before we start, Sarah, do you have any disclosures on this topic that you'd like to share? I do not have any
1: disclosures.
0: So for our listeners, like Sarah said, we're going to go down memory lane. And I want to say that Sarah and I met probably back in 1985 when we were both working at dietitians for really newly formed abdominal transplant programs. I can say personally that very little was known about transplant nutrition at the time. So when we found each other, we collaborated a lot and developed some of our early protocols just by going back and forth and does this sound right and, and and what do you do? Oh, great, that's what I do. So our discussion today is going to kind of touch on where we were, where we've gone over those decades and where we expect to go in the future. So Sarah, we're going to start back and we're going to head back a few decades ago. What was known about transplant nutrition when you started as a transplant dietitian? And what were some of the first processes or themes, so to speak, that you had to focus on as a new transplant dietitian?
1: Well, I think back when we were getting started and our programs were setting up, in general, we knew that nutrition was going to be important, but we didn't know how, didn't know any of the who, what, where, when, or why of it. So in in a sense, it would be easier to say what we didn't know at the time. We didn't know what calorie and protein needs are going to be. So, you know, we kind of picked numbers and from what we were using at the time for common amounts and, you know, did the research looking at REEs and urinary nitrogen excretion to try to get a handle on what those calorie and protein need targets might, might be. And then, as we know now, some patients are pretty hypermetabolic and some are not. While that's changed, perhaps it, it also still has many similarities or applications for today. I think that one of the things reflecting back is the diseases that we transplant for today are different than what we did back in the early days of transplantation. And so some of those nutritional issues might be different as well. For example, in liver transplantation, which has been my love within the the realm of overall abdominal transplantation. the early days, our program transplanted a lot of people with PBC and PSC, and so malabsorption was a huge issue. Nowadays, with the advances in medical therapy and treatment, not nearly as many of those patients come to transplant, and so that nutritional issue isn't quite at the forefront that it was in those early days. You know, I think to reflecting back, one of the things we didn't know was really even how to feed these people. Since so much was unknown, they were in the ICU for longer periods of time. So we used parenteral nutrition because we didn't know when it would be safe to feed people enterally. Tube feedings were not really generally accepted as well as they are today. And so, you know, a lot of parenteral nutrition was done in those early days. And now it's often used as kind of a, a last resort when oral and enteral can't be implemented. So I think um, one of the other things that we spent a lot of time focusing on is infection and infection control in the realm of olive transplant, but also you know, from a food sources and food safety, looking at some of those types of issues was also kind of a critical piece for us. And then lastly, I think medications has been a, an early theme, especially the immunosuppressive medications. While they were, cyclosporin was just coming on board, we still didn't know a lot of what the long-term ramifications, many of which are, you know, nutritional related, whether it be, you know, hyperlipidemia or post-transplant diabetes. You know some of those kinds of things we were you know kind of learning as we go about what issues to watch for and how to manage them and treat them.
0: So Sarah, I have a couple of things that I wanted to mention that kind of brought to mind when you mentioned that the diseases that we used to transplant. I remember sitting in a meeting with our transplant group, our hepatologists, our surgeons, all of the ancillary personnel, and our chief hepatologist saying, If we could cure hepatitis C, it will change the phase of transplant. And we all thought, well, that will never happen. Well, here it has happened. And I think you bring up a really good point that now we're transplanting people with other kinds of disease, such as non-alcoholic or metabolic associated fatty liver disease. And so that's really changed. I also want to come back to what you wrote in the paper about the chocolate milk emergencies. Can you kind of elaborate on what we experienced back in the 80s with the chocolate milk emergency? I'd
1: love to, because it's it's still, you know, kind of a marker in, of humor and all that uh, was important at that point in time. So when cyclosporin was first developed and implemented or to be used as immunosuppressive part of the immunosuppressive program for transplant, it was a liquid. It needed to be taken three times a day. Its absorption was enhanced if you took it with either orange juice or chocolate milk. And it needed to be taken in a glass glass because it would, otherwise it would be absorbed into the plastic of the vessel that you were mixing the liquid cyclosporin in because it tasted terrible. So you needed to to cover it up as well as enhance the absorption of it. And so on our transplant unit, Dietary was very involved in making sure that there was Sufficient amounts of orange juice and chocolate milk and racks of glass glasses. And if those seemed to be dwindling, especially before the seven p m. dose of of cyclosporin, everybody would kind of start to panic and make sure that, you know, dietary got up there and got things stocked in time before the next round of dosing for cyclosporin.
0: Something we don't have to deal with again today. so that's kind of interesting. I want to talk a little bit about transplant selection, because we've both been involved in that over the years. So how does the transplant selection committee consider nutrition status of our patients maybe back then and how it's viewed now? Well, I think uh, you know, then, as now, uh, nutrition
1: was deemed to be an important aspect of the patient's condition as they were heading toward transplant the opinion was that you know if somebody was malnourished they'd be at higher risk to get through the surgery their recovery would be longer that was true then i think it's really essentially true at this point in time as well i think that cms has helped to recognize that nutritional status is an important part of the selection process and so that's kind of heightened the consideration by the whole transplant team to you know be aware Of what the status is of the patient nutritionally. I think to me, that's what I see. How about you, Jeanette?
0: Well, I think another thing is I think it was important, but we didn't have objective ways to measure that a lot of times. And now, transplant selection committees are looking at frailty indexes. They're looking at different ways we can measure nutrition status, not only subjectively by subjective global assessment, but any other objective parameters. And I think they take it seriously enough that. It's not uncommon for us to withhold a patient from transplant list if A, they need to lose weight or B, they're under-nourished and need to improve. And I think that's been a bigger emphasis on that more recently than in the past.
1: I totally agree with you on that. So, and I think that's has elevated the role of nutrition within transplant and helped us to continue to be, you know, a vital member of
0: the transplant team. I agree. Um, You kind of touched on this, but another area of improvement has been transplant nutrition. So as those medications have evolved, what have we learned about the role of drug-nutrient interactions? I think
1: that one of the important changes with all the immunosuppressive medications that we have now in our toolbox is the ability to use so much less steroids than we used, you know, back in the in the earlier days of transplantation. And that has really helped reduce a number of the nutrition-related side effects or long-term complications that go along with immunosuppressive medications. And that's a win for our, that's a, really a win for our patients as well.
0: I think you could probably add to that the whole discussion about use of herbal supplements and herbs and drug interactions, because I think as transplant programs and transplant nutrition specialists, we probably have questions about those almost daily. Agreed. Also, I think when we started, we were probably only a couple of a handful of dietitians that specialized in transplant nutrition, uh, you know, 40 years ago. So what are some of the catalysts that triggered the growth of this field? You kind of mentioned it, but the recognition by the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, with a requirement for transplant dieticians to be involved in the transplant process and in the transplant program helped. But were were some of the other triggers that kind of helped make the field of transplant nutrition move forward?
1: Well, I I think CMS added that as transplant has evolved, but it really goes back to the initial transplant programs that were getting going in the mid to late 80s. And the successful ones did acknowledge transplant nutrition and had people like us actively working within their programs and were showing success. And so it kind of snowballed that other programs would add nutrition as a part of their programming. And then that continued to Evolve and CMS took the step then to require transplant nutrition as they have other allied health uh, and supportive services with that. I think the other part of that so is that we kind of a subspecialty within the world of nutrition support, and because there are so many questions that we got together to do, you know, to do compare notes like, as you and I did in those those early days, but that circle of comparing notes and asking questions and working together on, you know, multi-site research projects and, or trying to answer questions or comparing notes about what you saw versus somebody else, that those kinds of things have continued to ripple out. And with CMS, you know, in, you know, requiring nutrition as a part of that, uh, that's helped our group develop a you know means of communicating with each other whether it be a listserv or attending conferences and working together you know like I said on articles for a variety of publications you know Aspen all along has been generous in including a transplant segment within the annual meeting at clinical nutrition week and so, the transplant uh, nutrition world, we tend to gather at those kind of events to grow and and support each other along the way and to continue to try to move transplant nutrition
0: forward. So Sarah, I have a big challenge here for you. Uh Can you kind of name or discuss some of the biggest changes you saw in transplant nutrition over the decades that you saw in your own practice?
1: First of all, what hasn't changed is that I think we can we still provide a you know an incredibly vital role and service to our patients, to their families, and also to our transplant programs. But I think as we you know look back and seeing what's changed, obesity management, I think, has been a huge piece. If you would have told me back in the day that I would need to be a weight management and bariatric surgery specialist, I would have said, hmm. Maybe not, but that's the way it has evolved with the changes in who we transplant and what we transplant for, you know, and now the transplant nutrition professional needs to have bariatric, you know, knowledge or weight management knowledge with that. I think that one of the other big changes is, you know, In the early days, parental nutrition was really our first go-to in how to feed people, and now it's our last go-to in how to feed people. We feed them orally. We're much more aggressive with enteral feeding, whether it's pre-transplant as a part of a prehabilitation program. We might use enteral nutrition as used preferably in the ICU, both before and after transplant. So our routes of feeding people, I think, have really evolved as Medicine and nutrition has evolved over this, you know, 35 plus years or so of transplantation. And then I think the other piece is, that's evolved is what we know as far as uh, getting a, a better grip on being the the language, but also the tools to describe malnutrition, to describe frailty, to use as markers for progress or or lack thereof in patients, you know, especially looking at the pre-transplant aspect of of it with so many patients waiting so much longer for organs than they did in the early years, maintaining nutritional status and health and quality of life as they wait for transplant, I think continues to be a a huge thing and, and very important. Many programs have huge, huge lists of patients. And so that's an area that you know we continue to, I think, play an even larger role in helping our program manage our patient list.
0: I think those are really good points. A couple of things I wanted to add is I never realized until you're in it that to be a transplant nutrition specialist, you have to be able to do nutrition support but like you mentioned, you have to be able to do counseling, motivational interviewing. You have to cover the whole gamut of everywhere that nutrition touches. I think another thing is that we're transplanting patients that are a lot older than we did back in the early days. And so now I'm having to learn things about working with patients over the age of 65, 70, or even over 75 sometimes in the patients that we're transplanting. And I think that has changed the landscape as well as more living donors than in the beginning and just expanding the donor pool to maybe donors that are not pristine like they used to be in the beginning. And sometimes that affects the patient's recovery for a transplant and their need for nutrition maybe longer.
1: Totally agree. So those are good points about how this has changed over time as well.
0: So we've kind of talked about where we've been, kind of where we are. So let's talk about where we need to go. So what are some areas of transplant nutrition that you think require further investigation and research?
1: Well, I think there's still so much yet to learn about the whole pre-transplant arena, you know, malnutrition prevention, detection, management, you know, how to optimally use the frailty assessments, which ones are better applied to which organ system. Because it may not be you know one size fits all from a frailty assessment. And I think we need to, you know, really expand this into the pediatric practice as well, where frailty and malnutrition and, and that assessment for growth and trying to maintain those kiddos as they wait for an organ is going to be, you know a huge area for growth you know, as we go forward. I also think there's some exciting things that may apply to transplant as we look at what we are only really beginning to learn about the microbiome, genomics, you know, xenotransplantation, and whether or not any of those types of systems or medical procedures or knowledge could potentially have some nutritional implications as far as how we might tailor diets or, you know, food choices in that regard using the microbiome to help people with their weight management. So I, you know, I think there's some exciting things that could be in that area that could be applied to transplant as well. I think that another area of interest in the future is, you know, immunosuppressive drugs are going to continue to evolve, and we'll need to continue to pay attention to how that affects our patients nutritionally, whether it be a food-drug interaction or a long-term side effect of the immunosuppressive medication, or maybe lack thereof as the medications get better and better. Some of the things we have spent a lot of time on managing maybe won't be as much of an issue going forward. I think that another area of investigation that's really getting started is what kind of food and nutrition programs for patients to use going forward after transplant. So, you know, and how to best motivate and support patients to use nutrition as a part of their post-transplant program to stay healthy. So it's not just a matter of helping them get to transplant and then okay, there you go. Our role to continues after transplant so that they live a happy, healthy life for a long time after transplant. So I think, you know, we need to, you know, learn more about how to support our patients so that they have that 5, 10, 20 year, you know, survival and, and that nutrition is, a, is going to be a piece of that. The last piece that, that kind of comes to mind with this is that, as we've seen Transplant continues to push the proverbial envelope regarding who to transplant, when to transplant, what to transplant. And that's going to challenge us in the nutritional area to keep up and to push ahead with the nutrition support and challenges to help manage that continued cutting edge part of medicine.
0: Well, so I think we've covered a lot of information today. And so as we wrap up, Are there any other comments or topics that you want to share with our listeners today?
1: No, I I think we've covered a lot of the the topics. I think transplant nutrition is a very exciting area and can be a very rewarding specialty part of nutrition support. And I'd encourage people to consider practicing in transplant nutrition because it's very, very rewarding and very challenging.
0: Well, I want to thank you, Sarah, for sharing your expertise with our listeners. I invite our listeners to learn more about this topic, as well as other papers on organ transplant and nutrition support, and the February 2024 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. On a special note, I want to announce this will be my last podcast as editor. I felt it was appropriate to end my NCP editorship with an issue on transplant nutrition, because this has been my lifelong area of practice and Sarah has been my almost lifelong colleague in transplant, and I really wanted to have a chance to have this conversation with Sarah for my last podcast. Dr. Russell Merritt is taking over the as editor going forward. He has a great deal of publication experience as well as a passion for nutrition support, interdisciplinary work and research. So the journal's gonna be in great hands going forward. So thank you, Sarah, for joining me here today. Thank you, thank you Jeanette.